You're listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast, Leaders on Leadership. Our guest today is Ed Shine. Ed is the Professor Emeritus at the MIT Sloan School of Management and is one of the most well-known theorists working with organizational culture. We are joined also with his son, Peter Shine, and Peter and Ed are working on re-releasing a book that came out in 2013. The title is Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. You are going to love what these gentlemen have to share on what it takes to pay the price of leadership. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Tracy Jones. Thanks for tuning in to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast, Leaders on Leadership, where we pull back the curtain on leadership and talk to experts all over the world on what it takes to pay the price of leadership. And today, I am extremely honored to have Dr. Ed Shine and his son, Peter Shine. Ed is the professor of organizational studies emeritus at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He is the author of books on corporate culture, leadership, career development, and the management of culture change. Recent books with his son, Peter, are Humble Leadership in 2018 and the Corporate Culture Survival Guide, the third edition, also in 2018. And he's got a ton of that before. You need to check them all out. And he is currently, they're both currently working on the revision of their bestseller. Are you ready for this title? I love this. Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. So we're going to talk about that at the end. There's so much I want to unpack in this. But Ed and Peter, thank you so much for tuning in from California to be on the Tremendous Leadership Podcast. Thank you for having us. You are so welcome. Thanks, Ed. Well, my father wrote, as you know, a book titled The Price of Leadership. And in, he was very passionate about leadership. And in it, he talked about that there's price leaders have to pay to truly be engaged in leadership. And so I want to get your input as leadership experts on the different prices and what this means to you. And the first price he talks about is loneliness. And Ed, you guys, we've all heard people say, well, leadership, nobody wants to do it because it's lonely at the top. So Ed, could you unpack that for us? What loneliness might look like for a leader and when there's not to be loneliness or, or what would, would you have for our leaders out there listening right now on this topic? Well, the best way to open this is with a provocative line. Leadership may at one time have been a lonely sport, but today it's a group sport. Love it's it. a team sport. And what I mean by that is that I think historically we have had jobs for people to be the head of something, a mm-hmm. company, a family, and so on, that really could be discreetly identified. And what I think really happened historically is the kinds of things that we today ascribe as jobs to leaders are no longer doable by one person. It's as simple as that. You can be told you're the leader and it's your job. You then sit in that chair and look at it and say, my God, I can't do this alone. There is no way I would be, I don't know enough. I need, I'm dependent on a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And if they screw up, the fact that I'm the leader, the buck stops with me, sure. But the very fact that I recognize that the buck stops with me is what should tell me that's the wrong construction. Right. The buck shouldn't stop with me. It should stop with all of us yeah. who are accountable to do things because we are today truly interdependent. Mm-hmm. So it's now a team sport, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. A lot of the stuff coming out is really talking about dyadic nature leadership. And that is, it's not just a one person show. It's the whole team. It's the co-leaders. It's the followers and how, how they're all integrated. And what advice would you give to leaders if they feel like they are in a position of loneliness? How can they unpack that and look at, you know, it's always the, is it me? Is it them? Is it both of us? I mean, because I think everybody in leadership has this, this aspirations utopia that we all are in this together. But boy, you look at what's really going on out there and you see that a lot of times it's not. And sometimes it is the leader that just is not being collaborative in nature, but that old school kind of my way or the highway. 
But what would you recommend for all the different people coming into the workforce? We have a lot of different generations. Any insights for that as to how to kind of build that robust cohesion? I have a very profound, simple, theoretically profound point about that. And it links to the other issue of how does change happen? Because after all, leadership is wanting to do something new and better. Mm. So once we think of it that way, yes, the simple answer to the question of how do I overcome loneliness as a leader is I have to get to know my subordinates, mm-hmm. my direct reports, my colleagues, and I have to collapse psychological distance. And most of all, I have to not do this famous comment that I heard a CEO make. He said to his team, now remember, we're all a team in this together, but don't forget that you're all competing for my job. That is a prescription for loneliness. Yeah, it is. Isn't that That is so, like, back the last millennial kind of thing. But you do have people that still get that set up like that. Yeah. And that breeds that competitiveness. Huge industry is built on that. And when people say, how do I start change? I come to the same point. It starts with how you handle your subordinates. Yeah. How you deal with your peers, how you deal with your direct reports on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. If you get to know them, you're going to be less lonely. Right. They will start telling you what's really going on and leadership will begin to happen. Absolutely. And I love that you talked about that. And I watched a couple of your other speeches where you've got that communication. And leader, we don't know. We're at like 30,000 feet and we, we don't know what we don't know. So you got to rely on your team to up-channel information. I think you used the surgeon example. And if somebody holds back from sharing something with the leader, but the whole thing is, you know, critical thinking skills and then being all in enough to pull, get a hold of the leader and say, I have to tell you something right now. Tracy, I'd like to add something too that a lot of this comes from that sort of history of the machine model of an organization Mm -hmm. where the leadership was ultimately charged with command and control. Right. Term that we, you know, at the time appropriately borrowed from the military. Right. But if you think of the well oiled machine corporation and the CEO in charge of command and control, it the buck stops with the CEO when it comes to efficiency. Mm-hmm. And that means capital efficiency, financial efficiency, all of those things. But our argument would be, yeah, that's important, but we've developed a lot of tools and a lot of mechanisms and a lot of ways of increasing efficiency that happen throughout the organization mm-hmm. without that critical command and control from the single, you know, alone person at the top. Love it. The challenge, though, is that if you don't innovate, you die. Right. And it's a lot harder to innovate as an I alone leader than as a leadership as a team sport leader. Mm -hmm. So you may be fine running that command and control organization. And if you're hitting your numbers, if the metrics all line up, you know, you're in good shape. And then two weeks later, some competitor out innovates you and you're in trouble next quarter. Mm -hmm. So it's really a question of you may be able to command and control by yourself. And that may feel a little bit lonely, particularly if you're not hitting the numbers. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to innovation, you really can't do that alone. That's very unusual. You know, out here in Silicon Valley, yeah, we've got some iconic innovators who created, well, you know, namely the largest corporation in the history of Uh, of the planet in Apple, that was a single, you know, iconic innovator, but he did not do it alone. Right. And and if he were alive today, he would be the first to admit that. Right. Innovation is absolutely a team sport. And leaders have to always be thinking about innovation. Yes, absolutely. I love that. And I love that you talked about the role is efficiency, but then you have to execute it. And I'm sure we'll kind of tease that out as we get down to vision. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for that input and that clarity on true leadership and how they relate to loneliness. And the next thing that my dad talked about was weariness. 
And when you're out there and you're innovating, you're thinking, and I'm sure Steve Jobs and all those guys got tired every now and then, what do you recommend? What does leadership, can you talk to me about, about weariness and how leaders stay replenished or at the top of their game so they can be there for the teams? What are your recommendations or insights on that? So I'll start this one off just with the idea that in some respects, your biggest job as a leader is to get the most from the energy in the room. Uh-huh. So if you individually are feeling flummoxed and tired and don't know the answer, step away from the mirror. Mm-hmm. Go into work thinking about how are they doing? And what can I do to the people with, to get the most out of the people around me? Mm-hmm. To let them bring more energy into the room so that I can tap that energy, not feeling the burden all on my shoulders, but saying, we're all in this together. We're going to do more to figure this out together than any single one of us could do anyway. Right. One way we like to describe that is the leader can always ask a question and get an answer to the question that he or she asks. The bigger challenge is what you should be shooting for is finding answers to the questions that you don't even know to ask. That's where the energy in the room really turns you on, right? It gets you thinking, oh God, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Well, those I hadn't thought of that moments are when you really get re-energized. Yes. Boy, is that true. I I love that because sometimes when I felt the weariness, like you said, or in the slump is when I'm not taking in other people's input, or I'm not getting but that questions I don't know how to ask, and then somebody will say some, and all of a sudden, that innovation energy and your open mind and those previously unrecognized assumptions, it kicks in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything else on the weariness and getting well, replenished and re-energized? Ed? Would you like a real-life example? I would love one, please. <laughs> I was a department chairman and had... 12 faculty members. And one day a notice arrived from the dean's office that our group, which was one of many groups in the Sloan School, had extraordinarily high telephone charges, way out of line. And a lot of these were expensive overseas calls. And the note from the dean said, find out what's going on because this is unacceptable. The provost is on my neck because phone expenses are a big deal. And so what I was confronted with was finding out from those 12 people who was over, because I had all the individual data, and then seeing each of them to see what was going on. And something I had learned from my mentors, Douglas McGregor and others, the people who have to deal with control overruns or mistakes are the people who made them, not the boss. So it occurred to me that what I really should do with this list of 15 people is to pretend I didn't see it, tell my secretary to send a note from me saying, our department has phone overruns, My secretary is giving each of you your own data. I would like you to look at it and let's meet next week and see what you've come up with on your own phone charges. I have not seen them. I don't want to talk to you about your overruns. I want you to look at them and see what you come up with. It's actually a good example of what Peter's talking about, though I'd never thought of that before. No, it's, that's a perfect So example. I started getting memos back uh-huh. all during the week from faculty members, some of whom said, it, you know, my things are completely within the norm, et cetera, et cetera. A couple people said, sorry, I was making some personal calls. That won't happen again. Or I should have put this on a research project. Mm-hmm. One memo said, Ed, I'm glad you brought this to my attention because I didn't realize that one of my graduate students, who is an Indian, was coming into the office every night calling his family in India. Wow. Now, there was no way I would have uncovered that. Right. 
And he might have denied it if I had confronted him with, you know, what's wrong with your phone? Well, yeah, he wouldn't have known. Yeah, he obviously didn't know the student was doing that. That's a brilliant example. Because, you know, Ed, you hit the nail on the head with a lot of times with leadership, people are like, well, it's kind of like adult babysitting. And it's like, well, no, not if you let the team members kind of come in on the problem resolution and fix it. I love that example. And it did require some innovation because I was tempted to say, well, I've got the data. I'll talk to each of them. That's the normal process. I had to invent my way out of how do I get them involved without my being on the hook. Right. Without you being the black hat. Peter's talking about. Yeah. Then things surface from them that you never knew about. I love that. That's perfect. Man, that's sage wisdom for leaders out there. Get them involved in the problem resolution. Let them figure out. And you even got some apologies that I won't happen. It won't happen again. You don't get those when it's coming down, you know, looking for who did what. Exactly. That's a great real world illustration. All right. Anything else, gentlemen, on weariness you'd like to kind of recap with? I know we tease this one apart pretty good. I want to make one general point about control systems. Yes. Because all control systems make this mistake. They gather the data about what are the overruns or inventory problems down in the organization, give them to head of accounting who gives it to the head of the line organization, and then the head of the line organization is stuck with having to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And my mentor, Douglas McGregor, always said, no, no, no. Once the person, the accountant, discovers anything that's out of line in a well-functioning system, he or she would immediately give that data to the people who had the overrun and say, you've got a problem. Your boss doesn't yet know about it. What's going on here? A good control system should give instant feedback rather than sending stuff up the line. Well, absolutely. Keep it. And we kind of learned that at the lo- in the military. Keep that stuff done at the lowest level, you know? Exactly. So leaders can't be looking forward if they're doing, like you said, you know, checking off papers to see, you know, what got mistake. I love it. All right. Excellent. So now the third point my dad talks about is abandonment. And abandonment kind of has that negative connotation, you know, fear of abandonment. But kind of what my dad was talking about in abandonment was that we need to really control our minds and thoughts and stay focused on what we ought and need to focus on rather than like what we want and like to. I think about, I read this book when I was growing up, it said, uh, sacred cows make the best burgers. And I always think about that because I always think, you know, I have my pet projects and I have my things that I like, but is that really what I need to be thinking about as a leader? So can you guys speak into that, what abandonment would mean for leadership and the importance of it? I mean, I guess I'll take one quick angle on it, Ed, and then I I suspect you'll want to build on it. You know, Ed shared that definition of leadership as wanting to do something new and better. Yes. But we, we also like to think of leadership as that that process of doing something new and better, not the role or the you know the attribute of a leader or the action of a leader. Mm-hmm. It's a process that multiple people are engaged with, mm-hmm. and we make a distinction in the humble leadership book in a model of four levels of relationship. But the critical levels of relationship are the two middle ones where what we call level one relationship is transactional, where you're maintaining your role, you're performing your function, you're staying in your lane, Mm -hmm. and you are transacting decisions and transacting business with other people adjacent to you. That's sort of a typical model of a work relationship, particularly in a transactional industry. The the level two relationship, which we sort of consider as sort of the critical one for leaders to be thinking about, is one that's based on personal connections built on openness and trust. Okay. And so if you define your work and your work success around those critical level two relationships, key connections with people built on openness and trust, you're not alone. You're not (laughs) abandoned. You are 
you are providing a vital, you know, side of a relationship to somebody else, and they're providing that vital energy back to you. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know, most successful, you know, leadership situations, we believe, are where there are those interwoven level two relationships, you know, highly characterized by openness and trust. Uh-huh. And, you know, nobody alone and abandoned because you can't afford, you're in a relationship. You have to maintain your side and they have to maintain their side. Right. So, Ed? I'm again thinking of examples. One example, well, or adding the point that actually Peter brought to the party in our joint writing is really a discussion of why do we feel in organizations that there has to be professional distance between the boss and the direct report. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a tradition in the transactional model of leadership that they, there shouldn't be nepotism, there shouldn't be favoritism, so they should be apart. Uh-huh. And what level two says is, no, that's exactly wrong. Mm-hmm. That produces all of those symptoms that your father talked about. Right. And so how do you collapse professional distance is another way of of asking the question. And my best example there comes really from a different kind of loneliness, the loneliness of the surgeon in the OR, who is totally accountable for life and death and is totally dependent on three or four other people Mm -hmm. who, if they make mistakes or are incompetent, the patient dies, but the surgeon gets blamed. So I have a son-in-law who does very difficult back operations that sometimes take five, six hours. When I asked him how he builds a team, he said, well, I need competent people in each of the major areas. And when I've got the names, I take them out to lunch. Now, that's a a very simplistic, profound insight. So he collapses what Peter is talking about in the simplest possible way. We break bread together. And bosses should always do that. The the Japanese are very good at it. Mm -hmm. They go out drinking together. And that's not a casual thing. It's necessary. Right. So they're functioning. So the way you deal with that sense of abandonment is not to let it happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. Get and, with your direct reports. Get to know them. Have lunch with them. Right. But the other alchemy is that it has to be genuine. We're very sensitive to artificiality, and you know, there. I mean, we were joking. There, there are so many like comics and movies and TV shows that have played on this very issue of insincerity and and a lack of genuineness at work. It's Mm -hmm. hilarious Mm -hmm. because it's so common and because Mm -hmm. we all see it immediately. Right. So we can make great humor out of that, but it really has to be, if you're deciding as a leader that you're going to really try to build those relationships, it's got to be in your heart. It can't Mm -hmm. just be a checklist, right? right. Be part of the agenda. It has to be something that's truly in your right. heart. Oh yeah, we call that in the military mandatory fun. Yeah, you guys yeah. get together and that'll improve camaraderie. No, it won't. We're completely divided. <laughs> but yeah. like you said, if it's real and genuine, it's also a great data point. And to your point about the surgeon, to really check in and make sure everybody's all in about. You can look across the street, you know, eyeball to eyeball, and go or across the table and say, hey this is the values and this is, you know, this is very important. And you can look at that person and go, they're right there with me, you know, and we're all collectively, you know, pushing towards the same thing. Right. You know, and that raises the, the, one of the sort of programmatic things that we sometimes talk about is, you know, say you've got a six meeting day in front of you, you've got back to back one hour meetings, tons on the agenda, got to get this stuff done. It's just a highly, highly content-rich day in front of you. But is there a way that you can take time, 10 minutes in each of those meetings, and that's a lot, maybe only five, but to just do an open, no agenda, content-free check-in with people 
just a temperature check, just to kind of get, I mean, I think people are doing this. I think this is a 21st century, almost obligatory style of management that people are getting. This is not new. Right. And I do think it's penetrating. I think people are getting the picture that you need to do those check-ins. But it's really, it's tough because content is always fighting against context at work. Right. And you've got to spend more time on context and a little less time on content. Absolutely. I love it. All right. Anything else on that? You guys wanted to kind of pull up. I love that. I think you're right that it is there. I mean, I was always told in kind of the, the motivational, the more kind of emotive type things, you know, we'd have this little gas tank and it was your emotional fuel tank. And before you start anything, are you on empty? Are you on full? Are you somewhere in between? Because no matter what I say, until I know where your head and heart are at, you may not hear a word that's being said in the rich context if I'm not aware of something that's distracting you, you know, or pulling away on you or concerning you. So, I mean, I love that. There is an important qualification to what you said, and that is the tank is the individual. Yes. And the temptation to say it's up to me is tremendous. And that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. It's not up to you. Oh, right. Right. And so don't think in terms of the tank being you, Mm -hmm. but the the energy source being the whole team. Love it. And ask the question, how full is our team tank? Ah, okay. Excellent. Because the earlier point that Peter made, when I'm tired, maybe the best thing is for me to go find someone who's very energized (laughs) and just say, what do you... What are you up to? And My dad, energy. he would always do that. He was like, if you're down, meet great people and read get great books. And then, whoop, then you come right back up. So yeah, that's excellent insight. Okay. All right, gents. Lastly, my dad talked about vision. And you know, you're out in California where you've got a lot of visionaries out there. I mean, and you talked about some of them, but he kind of said vision is not this, you have to have like this extra part of your brain or, or something like that, Gift, even giftedness. But just, he really talked about it was just kind of really seeing what needs to be done and then being able to build a team to execute it. So what do you guys, how do you see the role of vision coming into building the teams and getting the most out of people? I'll take that first. I think that the whole business of leadership is vision is unnecessarily linked to that something that happens at the top. Rather, that vision is something that can happen anywhere, anytime, around any of the business processes. Mm-hmm. So if you once unhook vision from what the top people do, the strategy, the big picture, the long range, and say vision is about improvement in the long haul. But improvement, I'm sitting as a group member in a team And I see people interrupting each other, and I point out maybe that maybe we could do better if we wrote things down so that we could get a whole thought down and go to the flip chart and write it down. And lo and behold, the group starts working better. Mm -hmm. So my vision was, you know, this present process isn't working. Mm -hmm. I can think of a better way of doing it. I find a way to make an intervention. It works. I have done an incredible job of leadership, and no one may even notice it. I will be aware of it. And I think great leaders, I suspect that when, what's the guy who fixed IBM and then wrote the book, Gerstner? I suspect that a lot of what Gerstner did was at that level. Mm-hmm. was not at sitting down and saying, what does IBM need to do? Mm-hmm. I suspect he hung around and prodded here and there mm-hmm. and implemented stuff that were part of something he saw. But this whole idea of vision being a thing and it's out there and you see it is nonsense. <laughs> we see it historically. Oh, Steve Jobs had a great vision. Uh But I know that Steve Jobs' vision, because it was quoted to me when I was a consultant there, 
is that Wozniak and Jobs had two very simple visions. Wozniak said, I want a goddamn computer that kids can use. Mm -hmm. It's too complicated. Right. And you know what Steve Jobs was alleged to have said? What? I want a computer that is going to be fun for yuppies. Now, you can call that a grand vision, but I think for him it was an immediate, why don't we make the Macintosh fun and easy? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For, for not for kids just, but for all of us. Mm-hmm. And they resisted government contracts. They resisted everything that wasn't immediate business fun uh-huh. for a long time. Uh-huh. So I think we have to be very careful not to escalate this word vision. Yeah, These unrealistic that. kinds of strategic things. Because right. strategy is getting to be a group sport too. Right. You know, where it has to change frequently. Right. Absolutely. Peter, anything on that, on vision? Well, yeah, I just wanted to add that I do think we find some of these, you know, kind of self-managed teams, holacracy, those kinds of things, to be very interesting experiments on how you sort of distribute the responsibility of vision throughout the organization. So the leadership's role is to be the great assimilators, but the great sort of insights and vision are likely to come out of these groups that roll up their sleeves and focus on mm-hmm. something. And the, the idea that's interesting with holacracy is that it's so organic, that right. it's allowed to happen anywhere in the organization based on you know a, a passion or a predilection to focus on something. So you know I'm sort of more interested in the great assimilator than the great visionary, because the assimilator is likely to, to end up with a sort of a bigger bucket to work with yes. than the one bet right. <laughs> that the great visionary makes. And vision should mean here and now. Right. What I see right now that needs to be fixed right. as much as where we're going in five years. Right. Well, I love that you pulled vision down to a very almost the beauty of the tactical and the here and now there's things we can do because I think sometimes we get the, the BHAG, the big hair audacious goal. And it's sometimes it's just like, let's just, you know, we've got a lot of stuff right here, right now. Like you gave that example with IBM, if we may not need to reinvent everything. You know what I'm saying? If we can just start looking at different things and getting innovative along the way, obviously we can get there. I love how you guys broke down vision. Outstanding. You know, I gave you a short critique of how control systems yes. mess up. Yes. The same thing happens with accountability. If we really want leadership and innovation and doing better things to be distributed, because reality distributes it that way, we have to find a different way of assigning uh, rewards and accounting. Okay. Not accounting. Uh, uh, Accountability. Uh-huh. That we can't, you know, take all the innovation of the group and then say the leader did it all. Right. <laughs> to find a way not to give all the rewards to the heads of groups. Right. And that's a deeply embedded problem in our reward systems. We yes. don't know how to really distribute rewards and mm. accountability according to where it actually exists and comes up. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. And for that. Tracy, don't yeah. get us started on some of the cultural underpinnings discussions because that'll... <laughs> well, we'll come back <laughs> for part two. Oh, I love maybe, that. Maybe it's, yeah, it's, we spend a lot of time talking about that, but we're at a unique place as the U.S. right now with struggling with that issue of, that sort of abject, rugged individualism versus a more sort of collective and holistic way to manage organizations. We're struggling with that. Oh, yeah. Well, can we talk a little bit now, now that we've talked about the fourth, can we talk about the book, Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling? And I know it came out in 2013 and you are doing a rewrite. Is this an updated edition of it? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're putting into that or what you've seen over the last seven years that you're adding to it? Well, I mean, the, the short answer to that is 
refreshed stories where we've sort of refined it because a lot of it's sort of a sequence of stories and examples. So there's a lot of kind of refinement to that. You know, I alluded to the relationship model, the four-layer model. Right. That was not in the original book that is in this. Okay. It was sort of, it's been implicit for Ed for a long time, but it's more sort of forcefully argued in, in the new Humble Inquiry book. Excellent. And then we heard the first two, so you go into the other two in the book. Yeah. Go ahead, Ed. Let me elaborate on one point, and Peter didn't bring it up, though it's his point. In the first edition of Humble Inquiry, my goal was to illustrate how to inquire in order to build a better relationship, and that's absolutely still there. Yes. However, when we start to talk about what's happening now, seven, eight, nine, ten years later, the thing that Peter brought to the story is, but, you know, today we need humble inquiry just to figure out what's really even going on. Right. Because the context has become incredibly muddy with fake facts. Right. Fake truth. We don't know what reality is. So for me, the biggest new part of this book is to say we need humble inquiry to find out where we're at, what's going on. We can't second guess it. It's too complex. Oh, gosh, yes. Too muddy. Absolutely. And do you kind of drill more into that? I mean, I didn't read the first edition. Well, book now. Okay. Excellent. And it's sort of, it's counterposed against our obsession with data and analytics, that all of that stuff's important. And most business decisions are going to be based on that. But if we don't step back every once in a while and and ask ourselves, yeah, but what's really going on? Right. That's what the humble inquiry is really about. Absolutely. Getting to that level of genuine curiosity so that we don't just get so focused on the data, so focused on the content that we sort of miss the context. Excellent. And so do you kind of go into a series of kind of whatever sense-making strategies or kind of tools or diagnostics about how to unpack different issues? Yes, not solely. Mm -hmm. That's what we add to what was already there. Excellent. Okay. Awesome. Oh, I can't wait to see it. It's another example of the earlier point of where we as a team ended up with a brand new point that never occurred to me Uh that resulted from beginning to work together. Oh, I love it. I think has become a more important part of the book because I was all about helping and, you know, how to build relationships And at that time, that was the bigger issue. Today, the bigger issue is what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And I wasn't aware of that as where Humble Inquiry really can help Uh until we started to work on it together. I love that. That's exciting for you both. As somebody who's very close to her father and unpacking leadership stuff, I'm excited for that. What what is it? None of us is as smart as all of us. So... I'm also excited at the pairing, you know, you teach and you've researched innovation. And I love it, Ed, that you got to this awakening that, hey, here's Peter and and together we can create that. That's very exciting for this stage of what's going on. Well, I'm grateful that uh, Peter arrived at this on his own, too. Yeah. Things like that happen. He said, let's work on this together. I love that. Gentlemen, also, do you address in this when people are trying to get to the root cause and find out, you know, look at the data, but unpack and really get to what are we really trying to solve here? Like, so what is it? Do you also talk about the timing? Because, you know, a lot of it is, it's so incendiary out there. Well, what do you think? You got to make a decision right now. And I remember reading um, Stephen Sample's book, The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. And he's like, 99% of what you get asked you don't have to make this decision right now. There is a time when you're going to have to make a decision. But um, do you go into that at all about, you know, how much, you know, you've heard the analysis paralysis. Do you unpack that at all? By implication, I don't think we tackle time except culturally, we point out over and over again 
that the U.S. is a short-time yeah. <laughs> kind of culture. Right. Where we measure things by the minute, by the right. hour, by the quarter, and that that's often a mistake. Right. Because we don't know enough to right. know what to do immediately. We might need to inquire some more right. before we make a decision. Well, I, think, I think the cultural analysis gets at that very much. Well, and his book too, and I think that's the most important thing is I don't think we realize it because we are in such that, you know, multiple choice, pick the right answer, your time, dit, 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 you know, I need a response now, the cameras are coming. And so I think that you just making people aware that, I mean, you know, get the data, you know what I'm saying? Take your time unless you absolutely have to respond to it right now. So I think you just by having that will be a huge awakening for people out there that are in the process of decision making. Well, it leads to a very central point that we haven't brought up. Yes. And that is that people do keep pushing us to say, yeah, yeah, leadership is all distributed. But nevertheless, what should the guy who's at the top really be doing? Okay, big question. Yes. What should be that person's central, most powerful trait or skill? And I have an answer to that. Yes. Believe it or not. That person has to be situationally aware. The most important thing for the guy at the top or a gal is not to have a formula, <laughs> but to say what's going on right now mm-hmm. at this time in this situation mm-hmm. with this group, mm-hmm. with me. And when I figured that out, what do I do? Right. Situational right. awareness is a concept that came out of the safety stuff. You know, the safety people now preach that they as did. essential. Yeah. It's really even more essential for leadership. Right. Well, Ed, you'd like this. When I was in the Air Force and when I was in the military, I was in safety and QA. I was on fighter jets, so you had to have big safety. And that was one of the things we call it SA, situational awareness. In other words, if you're up in a dogfight, you may see the bogey in front of you, but you have to really be aware of where everybody else is around you to include where the earth is. And so if somebody did something where they just were so focused on one thing that they missed all the other contexts around and we're like, man, that was some really poor, or another word, SA. And so, yeah, I mean, that's really cool that you're bringing that into, because it is so highly contextualized. And there's so many different pieces that you have to get and look at. So I love that you're pulling SA in. So if I'm picking a leader, if I'm the board, that's the most important thing mm-hmm. I would be looking for. Okay, that's a great insight. Yeah. And, and you don't I, hear I guess people say that. Related, yeah. I was if just going to say related to that, back to the subtitle tagline for the Humble Inquiry book is a lot of it is about this distinction between telling and asking mm-hmm. that you were describing that situation where you're being asked something but really you're being told something. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> and, a parenting. And, like a parenting thing. Well, I'd like you kids to make your bed, and then they finally look at you and go, you're telling us, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we do. That's part of that management tradition, that, that sort of command and control mentality, that you know we shouldn't really be asking questions that we don't know the answer to, because mm-hmm. then we're revealing our ignorance. Mm-hmm. And our, we're trying to turn that upside down and say, no, you're going to actually become much better informed, much more situationally aware if you do reveal your ignorance. And, you know, yeah, there's, you don't want to show weakness necessarily, but, you know, people don't always seize on weakness in a negative way. Right. You know, that's what Brene Brown has made her whole vulnerability argument about. Is I was going to say it's Oftentimes that invites more collaboration Mm -hmm. than, you know, aggression, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just because you show vulnerability doesn't mean it's going to be met with aggression and and, uh, negative energy. Right. Much to the opposite, I think. No, I completely agree. Yeah. There's a, a core expertise. I mean, they expect you to be knowledgeable, but as you brought out, modern day world, stuff changes so quickly. I mean, from regulatory, from world, we're all interconnected. And so what seems so cut and dry 40 years ago, you can get up and look and turn on the TV the next day and everything's, as we just saw recently in, in the pandemic, everything's completely changed. So 
you know, core expert. You want to be competent, but nobody can possibly know it all. You know, I know what I know right now and I'm trying to learn, trying to surround myself with people. But I love that you say, but we got to ask questions as leaders and keep digging. And there are no answers. There are only adaptive moves. I love that. I wrote that down from one of your videos. I love that because that was when my PhD was in uh, resiliency, self-efficacy and adaptive capacity. And I'm like, no, there is no fight or flight. Adapt. You know, you have to learn to adapt. So that's beautiful. I love that. I love that. Well, gentlemen, anything else you would like to share with our leaders listening? Because they have two great, incredible, well-learned men on the subject. So anything else you would like to leave with our group of people listening? Get to know the people around you. Mm -hmm. We say it, we don't do it. And you'll enjoy your work more. Yeah. I mean, we are humans. We are social animals. We don't like loneliness, weariness, and isolation. You know, we don't like that. No, I know. We're not coming for that. Right. I love it. Well, Ed, we heard that point loud and clear. So I truly appreciate that. So gentlemen, where can people that are listening find out more about you, get your books, get on how they can find out about the new book coming out. And I know you guys are all over YouTube, publish papers, all that stuff, but what's the best way to connect with you both? Well, our website, OCLI.org, which is the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute.org, OCLI.org. That has a form where you can contact us. It has pretty current information, though it would take me too much time to be continually updating that site. (laughs) We all have that problem. You know, there's there's not enough time in any day to keep your website fully current. (laughs) But <laughs> you too. Okay, that's good. Oh, to yeah. I feel better. So, but that's an easy way to do it. And my email is peter at ocli.org if people want to reach out directly. Outstanding. I learned early on a principle from my PhD mentor who said if you can't write it, you don't know it. So, I think I've always been dedicated to the written word. And people may say, well, where are the workshops? Where are the how-tos? And so on. I say, well, we're not ready to tell you. We can write about it and explain it and hope you get it. And that's where I still kind of feel we are, because so many of the other leadership people have the formula and the programs and stuff. And I kind of think that doesn't get you anywhere in today's world. Interesting. That's a really interesting insight, Ed. Thank you so for don't sharing. Don't be afraid to read what we write. No, absolutely. And I just want to hold up a little picture. This is the nice. cover art of the Corporate Culture Survival Guide. Love it. And we wanted to create this image of the circle of culture change leadership because, to Ed's point, it's not a program. It's not a linear progression. It's a continuous wave-like cycle of things that are intricately interwoven. Culture change and leadership all happen together, iteratively, adaptively. So think about the circle and the wave, not about the line or the formula. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Well, gentlemen, I just so appreciate your insights, you're taking the time from your decades of knowledge and your real world experiences. I love it when we combine the theory with the application. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. So thank you both for your transparency and for your time spent with us. I just, I hope everything goes good in California. I hope you're safe from the fires and we're all out of this soon and say hello to your puppies, Peter. I got, I'll say hello to mine. Before you cut out, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Go right ahead. Have you read Friendly Fire? I have not read Friendly Fire. By a man by the name of Snook, S-N-O-O-K. Okay. It's the story of what happened when the two fighters shot down the UN helicopter with the 20 UN diplomats. It is the most exciting analysis of efforts to be situationally aware. And okay. in spite of that... It was a major tragedy. Well, it was. And Ed, I did not know that book was out, but I was actually deployed to Turkey. Those were our jets that that happened. Those were two of our pilots. 
So, wow. Uh, that, read that book. Yeah, that was when I was in the Air Force. So I knew that. I remember when they landed their faces, and I remember their faces when they found out what happened, that they had mis-ID'd the two Which choppers. Is one of a dozen factors that wow. all work wow. together. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's so, what that book, Friendly Fire, talks okay, well, about. Well, thank you. Thank you for that book recommendation. I absolutely will check into that. So, gentlemen, Good. thank you. I can't thank you. I must tell you, I admire you having been a a fighter pilot. <laughs> oh, I worked on them. I worked. I was an aircraft maintenance officer. They didn't That's let ladies fine. fly them back it then, but they still, do now. Still counts. Well, I did. I because they couldn't have flown if I weren't out there with my maintenance guys. They were wonderful. Yeah. What did they teach absolutely about a team sport? Yes, it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. So, all so right, talk Jeff. about them depending on you. Yeah. Now, how many pilots worry about how good is my maintenance crew? Well, any pilot worth his salt war, and that's what they knew. They took, they were good to us because they knew we'd live on those jets and make sure they had as many landings as they did takeoffs. That's what they wanted. They wanted that to be equal. Exactly. <laughs> were you working on aircraft carriers as well? No, I was in the Air Force. So I worked on the F 15s and F 16s. So we were at, at that point, we were at Operation Northern Watch deployed out to Turkey after the first Gulf War for that. That's when that when we were out there when that happened well what an exciting time that must have been yeah the military was a beautiful place to learn leadership and i've just had a lot of a lot of great real world opportunities out of that and now i get to just keep writing and researching and talking to people like you it doesn't get any it doesn't get any more tremendous than that well i hope you do write from the point of view of what it's like to be a maintenance person i hadn't you thought of that but you know what Okay. Uh, it's a big mystery, you know. We all depend on it. We all fly, and we know practically nothing about that occupation. Okay. Ed, thank <laughs> you for that. And I'm sitting there on airplanes. If I hear what's going on, people are talking around. I'm like, this is what's going on, you know. Just it's okay or no, stop complaining. We need to stay on the ground until this gets sorted out. So thanks, Ed. I really hadn't thought about that. It would be a, an important contribution in this age of flying. Yes. Yes, absolutely. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you so much again. And to our fans out there, if you like what you heard, please click on the share, share this with people. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you do us the honor of a rating or give us a comment, we'd love to answer. If you've got any questions for Peter or Ed, we'll forward it to you. Thank you so much for being part of our tremendous tribe and keep on paying the price of leadership. Enjoyed the conversation very much, Tracy. <laughs> Thanks. Good job. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Find out more about Dr. Jones at www.tremendousleadership.com. If you've been ignited by something you heard in this episode, let us know by leaving a review for Tremendous Leadership wherever you listen to podcasts or by sending us a message through www.tremendousleadership.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.